Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. The past two decades have seen a lot of crises that have affected financial markets. The global financial crisis, the European sovereign debt crisis, COVID-19, and the Russo-Ukrainian war. The list goes on. Last month, Fidelity marked the 20-year anniversary of its Australian Equities Fund. The fund has consistently outperformed its benchmark, the ASX 200 Accumulation Index, netting over 11% per annum. Paul Taylor, Head of Investments at Fidelity International, has captained that ship from inception till now. In today's episode, Paul explains his process for finding what he terms the holy grail of investing, long-term compounders. He also discusses the market's next buying window, the need to view stocks and their upside potential within the context of portfolio construction, and the next thing to break if rates keep rising. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. Good morning. Great to be here. Right. So the Australian Equities Fund uh, recently turned 20. Um, Congratulations. A lot of economic crises have dropped in that period of time, um, yet the funds managed to return uh, about 11% per annum over that time period. What's the most important thing you've taken away uh, from the journey? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point that you make, is that uh, we've had in that 20 years probably about eight or nine different crises, that, and some of them have been you know, very significant, you know, the global financial crisis was 50% 50% down. So I think the key thing, and as you said, through all of that, through some of the worst crises ever, uh, the fund has delivered a little bit over 11% per year after all fees um, over that 20-year period. It sort of just tells you don't, don't panic. You know, it also says the equity markets are volatile. They go up and down. And you definitely shouldn't be thinking equity markets, if, if, if you're thinking about a short-term investment, if you need your cash at the end of 12 months, you know, equities are probably not the right place for you. But as a long-term generator of wealth, um, or my personal opinion is there's no no better place to do it than, than the equity market. And that's, what also, that's also what those returns say through all of those different crises. You can still do 11% per year, but you've got to um, you know, get rid of the noise. You've got to focus on what's important. You've got to focus on the long term. I think that's the other key thing is that you can't get, really don't get caught up in short-term noise and fads and fashions. Um, you've got to f- focus on long-term fundamentals. And if you do that, um, you know, the returns will be very good. I mean, it's definitely noisy out there, noisiest it's been in a long time. How do you block out that noise? I speak to a lot of fund managers and they say they're investors for the long term. They don't really care about market movements day to day. Yet when I catch up with them, the first thing that they're talking about are the daily moves. Mm. Um, how do you block out that noise? 
Uh, well, it's a very good point, and I think it's actually the art of the fund manager. So a good fund manager, good fund managers can basically um, block out that noise. Don't get caught up in in the day to day movements. You know, if you, if so, you know, the twenty years of the uh, Fidelity Australian Equities Fund, I think our turnover is around about fifteen percent. So that tells you that we have an investment. Uh, timeline horizon of about five to seven years and I think that's about right so that's what we we're doing what we say we're going to do and that and that five to seven years I think is really important it's it's the ability to look out that distance is important in trying to get rid of the noise now some of the things that that you do uh, to filter out that noise is you really just I always talk about you know you want to focus on important versus unimportant now that sounds very simple but Sometimes unimportant things are really interesting things, and you get you get sucked into those really interesting but unimportant things. So you got to ask each bit of information you get. You got to ask yourself: is it is it important or unimportant? You got to focus on the long term, not the short term. You got to be proactive, uh, not reactive. Um, so I, you know that's what gets you into it. You've also what I also find is my best days uh, when I'm out meeting companies, talking to companies, understanding how they earn money, what their, what's their business model, what's their strategy going forward. Uh, my worst days are when I'm sitting at my desk watching the market go up and down. And, you know, when you, if you sit at your desk and, 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 and see the screen go green or red, it's, it's acting on you, you know. Like it's, it, and sometimes the best thing to do as a fund manager is, is to do nothing. But when, the, when, the, when there's, you know, when a, when a crisis is happening and the market's going down, it's actually hard not to, because everything's saying do something, do something, do something, when really um, you should be just evaluating, you should be spending time with the companies, not reacting. You know, the, the, the market, it's an emotional roller coaster, and you do not want to get sucked in to that emotional roller coaster. So if you can, that's how you stay out of it. So, um how I do it is by not sitting and looking at my screen, but getting out and talking to companies. And that's the fundamental basis of our approach. And that's what we're all doing within the uh, investment team. Or even if I'm at my desk uh, reading or doing some research, I turn the screen off. Don't don't look at it. I also, on a news flow type, daily news flow, I tend to focus on things that are a little bit longer term. So I don't tend to read a lot of short term things. You know, you get to the end of the week and you go, well, if if information is there at the end of the week, it means it's got some longevity to it. Uh, so that's important. Uh, or obviously, if something's you know happens in the mornings, people have forgotten about it in the afternoon. It's obviously not important, and it's you know it's not relevant. Uh, I think the long term, short term thing is a really important thing as well. So you're continually asking yourself, is this something structural for the for the longer term? Because um, it's like I said, in the short term, you get fads, fashions, you get lucky, you get unlucky. In Over the long term, fun, it's what fundamentals are, um, fundamentals will out over the long term. They, but they don't out, you know, over three months, six months, even 12 months. Fundamentals don't necessarily out. So um, keeping that focus on the long term, keeping that focus on what's important, keeping that focus on being proactive rather than reacting to things. Simply by being proactive, you're saying this is what I think is important. And this is what I'm going to focus on. This is what I'm going to. This is what I'm going to um, research as well. I got to ask you about the GFC around Lehman Week. Lehman's going under. Uh, markets were in freefall. 
Did you make any moves at all in response to that kind of event? So we um, we did. I did make moves, but it was sort of in the lead. I guess I got ahead of it a little bit, but not not a long way ahead of it. Right. Um, so one of the advantages uh, I have working at Fidelity is that we've got you know one of the biggest uh, equity teams around the world, and people think of Fidelity as an equity house, but we're actually a very big fixed income house as well. So in the lead up to the GFC was all about really about fixed income markets, commercial paper markets, and a lot of them were closing. So we were getting leads from our fixed income analysts, were basically getting that information out around the Fidelity Global Network, effectively saying commercial paper market is closing, uh, spreads are widening. And even, even then when they were widening, you couldn't necessarily, um, you know, you couldn't do anything anyway. So... As you know, then we basically go. Okay, this is what's happening. This is the real world. What's who's going to be implicated? And then it's, it was a matter of in the local team saying, okay, who is going to be implicated uh, in that? Uh, and just to give uh, you know a, 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 an interesting example, it, it's sort of probably a um, a bad news, good news story as well. So one of the IPOs we bought we bought into the into the GFC was Rams Home Loans. Now, Rams Home Loans was right at the pointy end of what was happening in the GFC as well because they were warehousing a lot of their loans. They were getting – they needed the funding to get that done. Uh, basically, the stock, um, when, it, when it opened from an IPO, it was it was weak at the start, but it wasn't it wasn't too much um, – uh, you know, it wasn't too many problems. It was, but it was coming off a little bit. So I think, just from memory, I think we the IPO might have been around two dollars or something like that. Um, as we got the information from our fixed income analysts, as we started to understand the ramifications, uh, we just, you know, it was probably got to about a dollar eighty. We decided to sell the entire position, which was relatively quickly after we'd bought into the IPO. Now, you know, we lost money on that, but effectively, Rams. Um, Rams Home Loans went, you know, f- you know, effectively. Westpac eventually bought it out, but it, you know, pretty much went to zero. So lost money, but it could have been a lot worse. And actually, that's exactly how our network and our the analysts around the world, equity and fixed income, helped us get get ahead of the GFC. Has your view of markets or approach to investing in markets ch- changed or evolved at all over that time period, or has the same recipe worked throughout? Um, I, I think you're, it's always evolving. So if I just think about the crises, those sort of eight or nine crises over the 20 years, I mean, I think you do learn You learn a little bit each time. Um, and they are, you know, obviously there's no there's no substitute to experience and the only way to get experience is to go through the, uh, those different events. So I've learned a little bit as I've gone through all those different uh, events. I think, you know, it's... Um, Mark Twain quote that gets used quite a lot, which is that uh, history history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think that's sort of what we take from a lot of these crises as well, is that there's a certain rhythm to them and there's certain things that you can work out and certain things. So right at the start of any crisis, it, it's typically based on, it's a very much a judgment call. And the only way you can make that judgment call is based on your experience. As you go through it, if you just take COVID-19 as an example, right at the start, we had a little bit of information because we'd been through SARS before, but it was really a judgment call. And that judgment call was based on on experience. So you have to have that experience to, to be able to make the judgment call. 
But then as it went on and on, we got more and more data. You get more and more data. You can make a better and better decision as you, as you, as you move forward as well. So there's a lot of um, similarities. I think I've also probably got better at things as you, you, know, you, you work out exactly what you, you need to do. I think you know, investment, investment theory is actually quite easy. We, we sort of all know what we have to do. It's actually the execution that's very difficult. You know, you know that um, you know when you need to be stepping in and buying things or when you need to be selling stocks, but it's actually the execution that's quite difficult. I think um, over the years, I, you know, just with the experience, I probably just got a little bit better at the the execution. Uh, you've had more and more times where you've seen it come through, so you, you just get a little bit better at the execution side. But like I said, investment theory is actually quite simple. Um, <laughs> just very hard to execute on. And as you said, you know, if you find yourself in the GFC or COVID-19's hit and the world feels like it's panicking around you, it's pretty hard to step, you know, it is actually pretty hard to step in and buy things uh, when you know that's exactly what you should be doing. It is very, still very, very difficult to do that. And But the more times you go through it, the more experience you get in that. It's, it's, I'd say it's never got super easy, but it's got easier through time. So if history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, uh, what rhymes are you hearing the loudest right now? Oh, look, I think – so when I, when I say some of those um, – uh, when, first of all, when I made that comment about the rhymes, it was really around like, – like I said, it was more big picture, like I was thinking um, what is uh, – you know, what, what can we – that, that judgment call up front, right? So that you, you sort of need to know that you need to go through judgments. Now, the judgment call on the different crises for me is normally around this, the, what markets focus on very early is second derivative. So now that second derivative, it, it's, it's, like it's like the acceleration or deceleration and everything. If you take that back to COVID, um, it was the the – acceleration or deceleration, the second derivative was really around, you know, cases and infections. And it was almost to the day that um, uh, infections peaked that markets bottomed. Now, that's just part of it, right, because you really don't know at that point. That's a pure judgment call that's just based on the second derivative movements, and but markets still bottomed exactly at that time. But like I said, the more and more data that you get, that you start to understand it and put a, put a bit of a structure around it, um, you know that's that that's that's effectively what you look. That's what you learn from. That's what you look at. If you think about today, um, I guess the big movements are inflation, interest rates. So people are people take their playbook from the nineteen seventies. So now. Um, so that's the I guess if you're looking at the rhythm, that's the rhythm of what happened, you know, back in the 1970s, and 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 but they're trying to learn from that as well. Obviously, one of the things the central bankers um, always say is that probably the reaction through the 70s wasn't, you know, if they had the time again, they'd do, do it slightly differently. They would have got on top of inflation much more quickly. That's obviously what the central bankers are trying to do now. So you've got a rhythm there, which is. Uh, inflation coming through, but a slightly different version because the central bankers are now trying to get onto it much more quickly so that we don't get a pervasive period of high inflation, which can be quite negative, um, you know, for a prolonged period. So that's that's the sort of, um, you know, slight 
sl- slight variation. So what will the most important second order, second order effects of the rate cycle be? Well, second order effects in any of those sort of things will be, you know, so that, you know, with the rate cycle, it's really the consumer is at the forefront, right? They're at the, they're at the coalface. So, and what I think they're trying to work out um, from the cycle, and that's the thing we don't really know. Even the central banks, central bankers are taking a pause just to see what it looks like, is effectively how, you know, there's a lot of, de- you know, if you look at the debt, um, or in Australia, if I focus on Australia, government, federal government doesn't, you know, its debts increase through time, but it's still still very reasonable by global standards. Corporate balance sheets are in incredibly good shape. Really, the debt is with mums and dads, it's with the consumer. And uh, so as interest rates have gone up, there's sort of still a question mark, well, how will people readjust? And then the other thing we've got is that a lot of them locked in lower loans uh, that are now just starting to roll off and this period we're in now is the sort of the, the peak period of those as they you know as the loans reset so um, what we don't really know is how much that could impact the consumer and that has obviously raised uh, question marks or concerns around well will Australia go into a recession so I think at the moment the base case is that we don't head into recession, but growth is definitely going to slow as we go through the second half of the calendar year. Um, but that that will be, you know, for people to make the call, so this is probably more the call, the more the call is, well, when do you step into that? And that's where the second derivative will come in. So effectively, consumer spending, retail spending, um, it won't necessarily be that it's when it's slowing, it'll be when it it start the slowness starts to decelerate. If that'll if that makes sense, so it'll be the second derivative, as because that just basically tells you that we're we're coming closer to the to the end of things. And markets look you know one to two years ahead anyway, so they're really trying to work out well how close is the bottom coming here. So that on the second derivative, it will be when you step in on the consumer stocks. I definitely don't think it's now. Uh, we got a bit to go. Like I said, you know, we've still got uh, concerns. And there's still possibility that we head into recession in the second half of the year. But um, we would be continually watching when, um, you know, all of that has come out of the retail market, out of the consumer market, and that will be through a second derivative. What's your best guess for that? That opportunity time frame it, is it confession season? Is it earnings season? When do you think those retail stocks will reflect the downgrades? Um, it's been it's it's you know you talk about things being slightly different. It's been probably the longest and most telegraphed slowdown ever, uh, and the consumer really hasn't done anything. You know, you look, go back through Christmas, the people are still spending okay. Interest rates are going up. I saw someone say uh, the consumer hasn't yet got the memo, and I thought, oh, that that's exactly right. It, you know, the consumer hasn't. Now things seem to have changed in about May, so May, June, July, it's definitely um, it's it's definitely turning over. So I think there's still a little bit, it's still a little bit to go. I would, I do think there'll be a slow, there'll definitely be a, the best case scenario is a, is a slowdown. We could head into recession. If we do head into recession, I guess I'd still my still my view would still be that it's it's a fairly shallow. It's not it's not a deep recession. Um, so you are 
looking to step into those. I think it will be somewhere in the second half, probably later in the year uh, than than early. So it would definitely be post August reporting season. So we'd we'd be looking at August reporting season, see what the companies say, see what um, the trends that are coming out of that reporting season. It's you know best guess maybe later in the year, but it's one of those things you've got to continually stay on top of. You know, you've got to be, you know, looking at the data continually. So the consumers at the coal face, and that means retail stocks uh, are in the crosshairs. If inflation remains sticky and rates continue to go up or are at least held at an elevated level for a while, what's the next thing to break beyond the consumer and retail stocks? Well, so that's a, that's a good point that you make because that's, I think the right way to describe it as well. So um, what we saw with um, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and maybe to a lesser degree, but sort of uh, Credit Suisse as well. So effectively, the first thing you see is a higher interest rate start to break business models. And that's exact. So, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, they, they had... Well, they were full of bonds. They were making bad decisions. Uh, The management team really should be kept, you know. But what the the business model they were setting up was was an unsustainable business model. And uh, so that effectively higher interest – that's what you see with higher interest rate. Um, That's the other, you know, quote I love is the uh, Warren Buffett quote. It says, you know, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. So that's what (laughs) happened. The tide went out and we just saw who's swimming naked. Um, and you see, and as interest rates go up or stay there, you start to see who has the unsustainable business models. So retail is at the crosshairs because that's just you know the more obvious one. You know, there's talk about uh, you know whether commercial real estate or or private uh, market assets get impacted as if interest rates stay up there. Uh, private equity is always looked at as is at least an element of um, financial engineering within that. So is, there's, there's the higher interest rates create issues uh, for any, anyone that's trying to look at financial engineering. I think that's definitely the case, and that's what we did see through uh, elements of that through the uh, global financial crisis as well. So once again, I don't think you can ever get too far ahead on these things. you just got to be continually meeting with the market, looking at the data, seeing where there's cracks in in business models because that I think you're right that's that's you do that's that's the next leg which is you do see cracks in business models or where business models break because they've been they've been dependent upon funding at low cost does your mindset shift to capital preservation mode or do you just trust the process and you know keep going well, so I'm I'm always thinking about capital preservation, regardless of the environment, and um, I do spend a lot of time looking at sort of upside downside on different stocks as well. My best, what I guess for bigger parts of the portfolio or foundations within the portfolio, I'm really looking for something that's similar to a, a call option payoff, which is very limited downside. But a lot of upside should things go your way. You know, should a few things happen, you get a lot of upside. Now, to me, that's a really good, that's a really good stock payoff because you got well. Even if those things don't happen, you know, I'm not gonna. I don't think I'm gonna lose too much money because it's the stock's looking very well valued. You know, very attractively valued. It's a good quality company. 
Um, you know, we think they're heading in the right direction. So there's not you, you're going to earn a, an okay return, even if things don't go your way. But if they're if this company's able to deliver on one, two, three, we think there's a lot of upside. So that's really so. I'm in building the portfolio. They're the sort of stocks I think that are that are foundation. So a lot of a lot of that is um, you know preservation, and I guess right at the moment as well. Uh, you know, as we talked about at least a slowdown in the second half and, and potentially a recession in the second half. I guess if I look at the portfolio, it's a little bit more, um, you know, defensive in, in, in nature where we're focused on a lot more of the essentials, uh, you know, the supermarkets, healthcare, which we think will, will do very well. Inflation, in fact, if anything, inflation helps them. Uh, and they, those come, you know, so we talk about consumer that's going to be weak. Uh, if consumer's wallet's got $100, got $100 in the wallet, Maybe the essentials, supermarkets and healthcare, used to be fifty. They're probably now sixty of the hundred. The other bit that was discretionary, we've had this bit of move between um, service goods and services. So through COVID, it was all about discretionary goods. You know, we all bought loads of stuff online uh, through COVID. Now people want to get back out and do experiences, travel, uh, hotels, flying experiences. So they're taking up a bigger and bigger share. So that the discretionary goods is a really is is really the bit that's getting that's getting squeezed. So the portfolio is still, I'd say, the portfolio is still positioned for retu- for positive returns um, because of the environment, but uh, probably a little bit. I'd still say a little bit more um, defensively positioned. This really goes to the idea that you can't pick stocks just in isolation, like a portfolio isn't just a bunch of isolated calls. You have to make those calls within the context of the portfolio. Um, So, yeah, can you just expand on how you think about upside and downside of an individual stock and how that reconciles with the overall aim of the portfolio? Yeah, definitely, and I think that's a really important point as well. So if if you look at um, the, the, the Fidelia Australian Equities Fund, we have... We say we normally have between thirty and fifty stocks in that in the fund, which we think is quite important as well. Uh, th- if you're below thirty, it's probably not a diversified portfolio. But if you go above fifty, you probably start to get too close to the market. So we think thirty to fifty is the sweet spot, and we definitely look at them within the context of one another. So the example I gave of that. Uh, Call option payoff, where you have limited downside but good upside if things go right. They they they're the foundation building blocks or the portfolio because you can have bigger posi- so I can look at bigger positions in those sort of companies. Uh, but you might also get companies that have a lot of upside, but they've also got a lot of downside. You know, so if a company's trading at a dollar and you think it could go to five dollars, it potentially also could go to zero. Now. That's still probably is still a good trade off because you got f- you got five times or you know five hundred percent or or minus a hundred percent so that your net returns you know whatever two hundred percent but and that's probably worth investing but that's never going to be a big position that you might allocate a small position to that or if you have a few of those you'll add a, allocate a little bit to each of those companies which ensures that well maybe you get uh, unlucky with a couple lucky with a couple and you actually get get the return across the portfolio, uh, which is actually the really important thing. So in building that portfolio of 30 to 50 stocks, you get those foundational elements. Um, 
that have the, you know, not a lot of downside, but really good upside of things go right. But you've also got a few of those uh, smaller allocations to companies that might have a lot of upside, but probably are a little bit riskier as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. It sounds almost like diversification is more a game of diversifying upside and downside as opposed to just diversifying positions. Well, you definitely think about the upside and downside as you go through that. Um, I don't, <laughs> I, I, you know, obviously I don't want downside. I don't want upside. Uh, but that's not always, there is a trade-off, I guess, maybe in each of those. So, um, like I said, my best trade-off is no downside and quite a lot of upside. Uh, but sometimes you, you do have to, if you're getting really, really high levels of upside, um, you probably do have to, you know, the the basic rule, you know, there's a few rules of finance. Um, more risk, you know, more return means more mm. risk, uh, which is, you know, which is the starting point as well. So the fund's really on the hunt for long-term compounders. Um, how do you find them? They are, long-term compounders are the holy grail um, because, you know, what, what we're fundamentally looking for is a high return on invested capital business that can reinvest at that high rate. So I often describe them as sort of beating the fade, really. You know, so if you've got a, a company that's doing a 20% return on invested capital, that's well above market average of, say, about 7%. So normally through time, through competition or for whatever reason or, or new technologies, high return should come back, should, should fade towards that 7%. So you're really looking for a company that can just hang in there for a little bit longer, just beat the fade. And the longer they can beat that fade, the more sustainable their advantage, the greater the value, greater the value creation. Now, if I uh, give a few examples of really good compounders for, you know, over that whole 20-year period, uh, you know, we bought, as in a great example, we bought JB Hi-Fi at IPO. Now, that was a great investment. And when we looked at it, we, we went back, we went down to the store economics. We looked at the return on the individual store. And then JB Hi-Fi had this, uh, had their strategic plan to roll out stores across Australia. And when we looked at it, that we thought that was a, there was a very long runway, not an infinite runway, but a long runway of where they could sustain that higher return for a prolonged period as they rolled out their stores around Australia. And that worked incredibly well for us. But that does need, it still needs a really good management team to execute on that. You need, you still need, um, you know, the same trends that are moving, the management team to execute on it, uh, you know, for, for it to continue. So you got to, you can't just invest and forget about it. You've got to be on top of it all the time and think, well, actually, when are we coming, you know, what's the valuation look like? When are we coming to the end of this sort of structural um uh, you know, higher returns, will that will it eventually fade to the 7%? Because in all likelihood, it will eventually fade to 7%. It's just really beating the fade. Uh, and, you know, some of our other compounders like Seek, we bought Seek at IPO as well. That was about a $2 investment. Um, you know, Seek's obviously been a fantastic uh, company for us over that period. WiseTech's been another great compounder. Domino's, we also bought at IPO, which was um, $2, and it's it's around $50 now. So they've all been high-return businesses that you can reinvest at that higher rate. And it, I think it's a couple of different things in, China, in terms of finding them. It's actually finding 
a sort of a business model that can be replicated. You know, Domino's through their store rollout, JB Hi-Fi through their store rollout, seek through the economics of that virtual model, of the, of the, of the network model. Uh, wise tech through uh, growth in e-commerce and and the ability to you know continue to main their, maintain their number one position, you you want that business model. Um, it, how can they maintain the business model? How can they retain the retain the um, returns? Uh, can they keep those higher returns going forward? And that's really just about you know spending time with the management team, understanding the structure, understanding the competitors, suppliers, distributors, uh, the forces the industry forces and then really putting that all together and and then assessing well how long can they keep this higher rate how long will it take for it to fade uh, back to a long run average and if you can beat that fade that will create a lot of value and that's what we've seen you know with companies like that over time i've got to ask you paul what do you make of the secular tech rally we've seen well i think people are um you know, the, 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 you're right. There's been this sort of uh, bifurcation of the market where you've got, you know, uh, tech world versus Main Street, um, and I guess the whole tech, you know, the technology side of it is really, um, you know, productivity improvements and 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 you know what's happening in AI and and automation is, you know, is quite it is quite exciting. Now I'm sure as we go through that. That, you know, similar to, um, you know, if I go back to, once again, if you, you know, we talk about, I talked about the different crises and crashes and, you know, as you've learned it. Um, if you go back to uh, 2000, so we had, in 2001, we had the tech wreck. From probably 95 to 2001, we had huge growth in a lot of tech stocks. Now, a few of those stocks have gone on to become, $3 billion businesses. You know, if you go back to the late 90s, Apple and that, they're now $3 billion businesses. So there's a few businesses, I'm sure today there's going to be a few of those tech businesses that are going to be phenomenal as we move forward. But what the tech wreck showed is that there's a lot of disruptors, there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of new ideas, and maybe of the, you know, 10 new ideas, uh, maybe a couple come through. You know, and there's a lot of a lot of a lot of people get left behind uh, in that, and that's either they don't have the capital to continue to grow, or because a lot of the businesses don't necessarily throw off profits now anyway. So I think that so that to me the tech situation be the same now. You're going to as we go forward, I'm sure there's going to be a couple that are just uh, incredibly well positioned, uh, but then a lot that will be left, uh, you know, on the, on on the sidewalk. So. It, it will be all about, um, you know, individual stock selection. Yeah, it's interesting to note that a lot of the tech companies that lead the market today didn't even participate in the tech wreck. They came afterwards, which really, you know, goes to your point about, um, you know, letting the dust settle and then it's what comes next that's important. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's and it's just, the, it's just the, it's, you know, once again, if you think about, uh, you know, I guess what was it? MySpace that was the original sort of social network, and it, uh, it it went nowhere, and it was really Facebook that's that's come through that process. So there'll be shifts and changes and uh, movements, and and I'm, but I'm sure some of the companies that are here today will be you know very successful, uh, you know, going forward as well. I think also, uh, 
just trying to there's a there's an effect called the Lindy effect, uh, which actually references longevity of something. So the longer something's been around, the longer it will likely continue into the future. The l- less time something's been around, it, it, you know, it doesn't have that same. It might not might not have that same longevity. So once. Uh, a technology is established and developed and has been around for a while. And we've, we've got some obviously very large tech companies that have now proved themselves over a prolonged period. The better the chances that they'll continue to um, head in that same direction. We'll move on to our three favourite questions, which we always uh, finish with. Question one, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? I think it's really interesting. One of the interesting things... Um, right at the moment is there's just a lot of things to worry about and people i'd say more broadly people are you know more negative on markets than positive i would say that's sort of the consensus at the moment but the funny thing is markets keep going up so that i think that's a positive sign all by itself that um you know people are there's a lot of cash on the sidelines so people are putting money into the market when they have to but i think the other thing is you've got to realise when everything sounds great, it's probably not actually not a good time to invest. So you're investing at a really bullish, excitable, excited time. And when you look at the next, you know, if you're investing for the next 10 years, uh, probably your returns are not going to be as high because it, it's already a buoyant, it's already a buoyant period. And I think sometimes people wait for everything to sound great before they invest. And I, I think you're probably not necessarily stacking the odds in your favour if you do that. If you think about the current environment, we've had, you know, we've got a lot of extra risk from inflation, from interest rates, from recession, from taxation, from regulation, from geopolitical risk. Um all of those things, you know, we've got war. There's a whole lot of things that are happening in the world that's adding risk, and that's been the volatility. And often, I always think of when markets are quite volatile, it's really the markets basically saying, I, I, it's, I'm finding it difficult to value it because there's so many different uh, risks entering the system. But if you have the timeline, if you have the hori- investment horizon – and you can look out the next five, seven, ten years, investing when all of these risks are getting valued into the market often presents the best long-term, you know, you, you, you're going to be rewarded for that. So I think that's, um, I think that's what people miss sometimes. Everybody's trying to t- time the exact bottom. Uh, you know, it's very, very hard to do. I think people don't – it's very hard to time the exact bottom. So in the, in the long run, close enough – really is good enough. Yeah, look, I just think a lot. I mean, When I just look at it, I just think, well, a lot of risk is now priced into the market. If I go back a few years, not a, not a lot of risk was priced into the market. Now I'm sitting here, there's a lot of risk priced into the market. So once again, whether that means the ne- it's going to be good next year or not, I think, you know, anything can happen in 12 months. But I think that's really stack. If, you're, if you've got a 10-year horizon, it's really stacking the odds in your favour because you're investing at a time of risk and that risk is getting priced into markets. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? Uh, what happened and what did you take away from it? 
the sick, we spend a lot of time trying to work out what's cyclical and what's structural. Ultimately, what we want, we're looking for is something that's in cyclical decline but has got structural growth. Because so you can pick it up cheaply, but you've got good structural growth ahead. Uh, but where things went wrong for us was when uh, we thought it was cyclical growth that, that we now think has turned into structural growth. But it's very seldom the case that it, that happens. It typically always goes back to cyclical. So it was just uh, getting that cyclical structural wrong. And then the other one's just balance sheet, which you've always got to be very focused on a balance sheet. So just getting caught out on the balance sheet. So we spend a lot of time really analysing, especially in difficult periods. You want to make sure your balance sheet is super strong. You want to make sure you understand the cyclical versus structural. But then it's all about picking the compounders. So if I come back... Um, to your original question. So one of those compounders that did that worked really well uh, for us, a company called WiseTech. And WiseTech was an interesting one because we we actually bought it pre-IPO. We are now um, so that's not listed on the market. They're they're getting ready for an IPO and we can we can invest in those companies basically up to a year pre-IPO. And that was a great opportunity for us to uh, spend time with the company, spend time with the management team in a private uh, setting before it actually IPO'd and get to follow it and get to understand the business and that worked that worked really well um, and then it listed you know so um, Wisec listed at about four dollars just from memory and it's and it's just under eighty dollars today so um, you know it's had obviously a very strong run and then we bought in pre IPO so it was even less than four dollars when we actually bought in uh, but it was. It was a really interesting one for us because it was one of the few tech stocks. I think we're getting more tech stocks at list in Australia. Uh, but the Australian market hasn't really got that experience or background in, in analysing and, and following tech stocks. So the local market, um, and you know, markets tend to be a bit herdish. You know, everybody loves something or everybody hates something or, you know, or somewhere in between. But there was a real negativity towards it because it was a tech stock and we didn't have a lot in Australia, I don't think the market really uh, was on top of how to analyse those. But being a global firm, we obviously could call on, um, you know, people from around the world that had a lot of experience in, in understanding technology, understanding valuations, understanding how it, it, it you know, moves forward. Uh, and we're in a much better position to, to, to invest into that company pre-IPO and have got to know it you know, better through time as well. And it's obviously been been fantastic for us. So we, you are, you do also really want to look for a company that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's not loved by the market. Uh, but in fact, you want to have a lot of negativity around it really to, you know, to get the best returns out of an investment. All right, question three. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, not that we recommend a one-company portfolio, which company would that be and why? Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear you wouldn't recommend a one-company portfolio. <laughs> so I'm going to follow that advice. And actually, not even though a three-company portfolio is probably not too much better, um, I'd probably put it down – I'd probably – I'm going I'm to say three companies that we are interested in. They're the three biggest in the, in the portfolio. Maybe explain why um, we think they're well, they're well positioned. I think, you know, when any – when you're looking at any company, you should be thinking about it within your portfolio. And then also the size of that position should come back to 
the upside downside that you think is in that as well, right? So the three companies I'd highlight would be, uh, well, actually, I'll start with Suncorp. So Suncorp is an insurance and a, a bank assurance company. Uh, it's about two thirds insurance, one third bank. The moment they're trying to sell their bank, and that's still under ACCC approval, um, their insurance business, insurance business, which is two thirds, is doing very well. The insurance market actually is very, very strong at the moment. So, uh, you know, people of, uh, you know, often look at insurance as well. There's been a lot of catastrophes. There's a lot of payouts, which is right. That's historically what's happened. But that also means that capital is very tight within the sector, and actually. For everybody, I'm sure that has a home uh, home insurance policy or a car insurance, you would have seen your um, premiums go up quite substantially. So that just shows you the tightness in the market, the capital that's gone out of it. So once again, the return, the cyclicality of those returns are going quite well, and the insurance sector is in a very good position at the moment. In fact, we quite like the whole insurance sector uh, in Australia for that for that reason. Suncorp has always been a bit of a forgotten stock. Because because of that bank assurance model, so they've always argued. Well, you know, the banks will be able to sell some of the insurance, and the insurance will be able to sell some of the bank. But it's never really happened, and no one really believes them, right? So it, it now they've effectively come to the conclusion. Well, actually, we just need to we need to be focused on uh, we want the simplicity. Markets love simplicity; they hate complexity, and Suncorp has been complex. It's becoming simple. Suncorp sold. It's life insurance business. It's sold its repairs business. Um, it's uh, selling its its bank, and it's basically becoming a general insurance business. So very simple, high quality, uh, you know. And they have a very strong position within the insurance market. So that's a, that's a good company that's growing their earnings all, all by all on its own. Uh, so I, you know, I, I talked about um, what looking for companies that have that. Uh, call option trade-off or payoff. And Suncorp's a great example because we don't think there's a lot of downside in Suncorp. Suncorp's, you know, attractively valued, good dividend yield, strong balance sheet. And actually, um, if they are able to sell their bank, there'll be uh, capital returns to shareholders as well. But importantly, um, more capital go into the insurance sector that they can really, um, you know, ensure that's a, that they're in a strong position. Uh, it does that does is dependent on the ACCC approval or government approvals, um, but to us it makes sense to do that. And if if they're able to get that through, we think there's a lot of upside. And we also think Suncorp um, will get valued. Suncorp's been always traded at a discount to the insurance peers because of that complexity. So we think that some of that discount will, um, you know, will disappear once the complexity disappears. So Suncorp to us is a great. You know, Suncorp's not a stock that's going to double or triple, but it's got, we think, limited downside, but pretty good upside um, over the next few years as well. Another similar stock to us uh, would be Ramsey Healthcare. So Ramsey Healthcare went through a tough period in during COVID-19. Obviously, hospitals, private hospitals, really stopped doing a lot of elective surgeries, and that's most people go to... Um, you know, private healthcare for some sort of elective surgery um, rather than um, or discretionary discretionary type surgery. Then they can't be put off. So if you if something's wrong with your knee or um, or you've got a longer term heart issue, doesn't have to doesn't have to be right now, but it has to be at some point. Those operations can't be um, can't just disappear. 
but they can be delayed. And that's what we saw through COVID. So there was some of the delays there. Uh, also, we've seen, um, you know, costs go up across the board. You know, so with inflation, costs have gone up for a lot of, uh, you know, consumables within the uh, medical space. Nurses' wages have, have, have gone up through that period as well. So they've gone through a very tough, they've gone through a very tough period with COVID and also with, with inflation. But what we've seen is that because it's healthcare, they're able to put up their prices to reflect a lot of that inflation. We're going through that process now. But probably more importantly than all of that, this is a rare infrastructure asset. Hospitals are a rare infrastructure asset. KKR made a bid for Ramsey, which we thought, um, you know, sort of low-balled the valuation. Even that was way above the share price that we are today. But we think um, infrastructure investors will come back and look at someone like Ramsey or a superannuation fund will come back and look at Ramsey because it's a great long-term revenue business and they're always looking to match their long-term costs with their long with long-term revenues. We think Ramsey is that rare infrastructure asset that can't be replaced. The hospitals around Australia, they can't be replaced. So um, once again, a stock that has got very limited downside but a lot of upside uh, you know, through time. And the final one I'll bring into that is IGO. So the other big thing that's happening in the Australian market at the moment is this uh, critical minerals, transition materials, right? So uh, commodities have been in a pretty good space, uh, but really the best place within that is the transition materials and the critical minerals. Now, everybody's focused on those areas. The demand for that space, so IGO is nickel, um, and lithium, or key ones are nickel and lithium, which are critical within the battery, within electric vehicles and electric batteries. And we have to, you know, it's taken us 200 years in our energy sources to get here, but we have to completely change in the next 15 years to move to, um, you know, different, uh, different energy sources. And it's actually the interesting thing is we're going to be dependent upon the miners. So we've moved probably from uh, fossil, we're going to be moving from fossil fuels to minerals. And the minerals are nickel, lithium, copper in that space. And IGO is one of the best, you know, lowest cost, good production, high quality company. They're also going to be an employer of choice through this period. So there's less and less people going through mining school, less and less people going through geology, the ones that come through, they want to work with a company that's solving the world's problems, not one that's causing the world's problems. So, and we've got, that's all going to happen in the next 15 years. So what, you know, that's going to be incredible, uh, the growth, you know, within this space. And I think IGO is one of the best companies positioned within that space. So if you look at those three, uh, IGO, Ramsey Healthcare, Suncorp, we think they're all, um, you know, incredibly well positioned for the next five years. Paul, this has been an amazing chat. Thank you so much for coming on The Rules of Investing. Great. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, give it a like and don't forget to subscribe to livewiremarkets.com for more free content like this. I'll see you next time.